Part One, Chapter Two of O Pioneers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. O Pioneers by Willa Cather, Part One: The Wild Land, Chapter Two. On one of the ridges of that wintry waste stood the low log house in which John Bergson was dying. The Bergson homestead was easier to find than many another, because it overlooked Norway Creek, a shallow, muddy stream that sometimes flowed and sometimes stood still at the bottom of a winding ravine with steep, shelving sides overgrown with brush and cottonwoods and dwarf ash. Of all the bewildering things about a new country, the absence of human landmarks is one of the most depressing and disheartening. The houses on the divide were small and were usually tucked away in low places. You did not see them until you came directly upon them. Most of them were built of the sod itself and were only the inescapable ground in another form. The roads were but faint tracks in the grass, and the fields were scarcely noticeable. The record of the plough was insignificant, like the feeble scratches on stone left by prehistoric races, so indeterminate that they may, after all, be only the markings of glaciers and not a record of human strivings. In eleven long years, John Bergson had made but little impression upon the wild land he had come to tame. It was still a wild thing that had its ugly moods, and no one knew when they were likely to come or why. Mischance hung over it. Its genius was unfriendly to man. The sick man was feeling this as he lay looking out of the window after the doctor had left him on the day following Alexandra's trip to town. There it lay outside his door, the same land, the same lead-colored miles. He knew every ridge and draw and gully between him and the horizon. To the south, his ploughed fields. To the east. The sod stables, the cattle corral, the pond, and then the grass. Bergson went over in his mind the things that had held him back. One winter his cattle had perished in a blizzard. The next summer one of his plough horses broke its leg in a prairie dog hole and had to be shot, and a valuable stallion died from a rattlesnake bite. Time and again his crops had failed. He had lost two children, boys, that came between Lou and Emil. And there had been the cost of sickness and death. Now, when he had at last struggled out of debt, he was going to die himself. He was only forty-six and had, of course, counted upon more time. Bergson had spent his first five years on the divide getting into debt, and the last six getting out. He had paid off his mortgages and had ended pretty much where he began with the land. He owned exactly six hundred and forty acres of wheat stretched outside his door, his own original homestead and timber claim, making three hundred and twenty acres, and the half section adjoining, the homestead of a younger brother who had given up the fight, gone back to Chicago to work in a fancy bakery and distinguish himself in a Swedish athletic club. So far, John had not attempted to cultivate the second half section. But used it for pasture land, and one of his sons rode herd there in open weather. John Bergson had the old world belief that land, in itself, is desirable, but this land was an enigma. 
It was like a horse that no one knows how to break to harness, that runs wild and kicks things to pieces. He had an idea that no one understood how to farm it properly, and this he often discussed with Alexandra. Their neighbors, certainly, knew even less about farming than he did. Many of them had never worked on a farm until they took up their homesteads. They had been hand-workers at home—tailors, locksmiths, joiners, cigar-makers, etc. Bergson himself had worked in a shipyard. For weeks John Bergson had been thinking about these things. His bed stood in the sitting-room, next to the kitchen. Through the day, while the baking and washing and ironing were going on, the father lay and looked up at the roof-beams that he himself had hewn, or out at the cattle in the corral. He counted the cattle, over and over. It diverted him to speculate as to how much weight each of the steers would probably put on by spring. He often called his daughter in to talk to her about this. Before Alexandra was twelve years old she had begun to be a help to him, and as she grew older he had come to depend more and more upon her resourcefulness and good judgment. His boys were willing enough to work, but when he talked with them they usually irritated him. It was Alexandra who read the papers and followed the markets, and who learned by the mistakes of their neighbors. It was Alexandra who could always tell about what it had cost to fatten each steer, and who could guess the weight of a hog before it went on the scales closer than John Bergson himself. Lou and Oscar were industrious, but he could never teach them to use their heads about their work. Alexandra, her father often said to himself, was like her grandfather, which was his way of saying that she was intelligent. John Bergson's father had been a shipbuilder, a man of considerable force, and of some fortune. Late in life he married a second time, a Stockholm woman of questionable character, much younger than he, who goaded him into every sort of extravagance. On the shipbuilder's part, this marriage was an infatuation, the despairing folly of a powerful man who cannot bear to grow old. In a few years his unprincipled wife warped the probity of a lifetime. He speculated, lost his own fortune and funds entrusted to him by poor seafaring men, and died disgraced, leaving his children nothing. But when all was said, he had come up from the sea himself, had built up a proud little business, with no capital but his own skill and foresight, and had proved himself a man. In his daughter, John Bergson recognized the strength of will, and the simple direct way of thinking things out, that had characterized his father in his better days. He would much rather, of course, have seen this likeness in one of his sons, but it was not a question of choice. As he lay there, day after day, he had to accept the situation as it was, and to be thankful that there was one among his children to whom he could entrust the future of his family, and the possibilities of his hard-won land. The winter twilight was fading. The sick man heard his wife strike a match in the kitchen and the light of a lamp glimmered through the cracks of the door. It seemed like a light shining far away. He turned painfully in his bed and looked at his white hands, with all the work gone out of them. He was ready to give up, he felt. He did not know how it had come about, but he was quite willing to go deep under his fields and rest, where the plough could not find him. He was tired of making mistakes. He was content to leave the tangle to other hands. He thought of his Alexandra's strong ones. "'Daughter!' he called feebly. "'Daughter!' 
He heard her quick step and saw her tall figure appear in the doorway, with the light of the lamp behind her. He felt her youth and strength, how easily she moved and stooped and lifted. But he would not have had it again if he could, not he. He knew the end too well to wish to begin again. He knew where it all went to, what it all became. His daughter came and lifted him up on his pillows. She called him by an old Swedish name that she used to call him when she was little, and took his dinner to him in the shipyard. "'Tell the boys to come here, daughter. I want to speak to them.' "'They are feeding the horses, father. They have just come back from the blue. Shall I call them?' He sighed. "'No, no. Wait until they come in. Alexandra, you will have to do the best you can for your brothers. Everything will come on you.' I will do all that I can, father. Don't let them get discouraged and go off like Uncle Otto. I want them to keep the land. We will, father. We will never lose the land. There was a sound of heavy feet in the kitchen. Alexandra went to the door and beckoned to her brothers, two strapping boys of seventeen and nineteen. They came in and stood at the foot of the bed. Their father looked at them searchingly, though it was too dark to see their faces. They were just the same boys, he told himself. He had not been mistaken in them. The square head and heavy shoulders belonged to Oscar, the elder. The young boy was quicker, but vacillating. "'Boys,' said the father wearily, "'I want you to keep the land together, and to be guided by your sister. I have talked to her since I have been sick, and she knows all my wishes.' I want no quarrels among my children, and so long as there is one house, there must be one head. Alexandra is the oldest, and she knows my wishes. She will do the best she can. If she makes mistakes, she will not make so many as I have made. When you marry and want a house of your own, the land will be divided fairly, according to the courts. But for the next few years you will have it hard, and you must all keep together." Alexandra will manage the best she can. Oscar, who was usually the last to speak, replied because he was the older. Yes, father, it would be so anyway without your speaking. We will all work the place together. And you will be guided by your sister-boys, and be good brothers to her, and good sons to your mother? That is good. And Alexandra must not work in the fields any more. There is no necessity now. Hire a man when you need help. She can make much more with her eggs and butter than the wages of a man. It was one of my mistakes that I did not find that out sooner. Try to break a little more land every year. Sod corn is good for fodder. Keep turning the land, and always put up more hay than you need. Don't grudge your mother a little time for ploughing her garden and setting out fruit trees, even if it comes in a busy season. She has been a good mother to you and she has always missed the old country. When they went back to the kitchen, the boys sat down silently at the table. Throughout the meal they looked down at their plates and did not lift their red eyes. They did not eat much, although they had been working in the cold all day, and there was a rabbit stewed in gravy for supper, and prune pies. John Bergson had married beneath him, but he had married a good housewife. Mrs. Bergson was a fair-skinned, corpulent woman, heavy and placid like her son Oscar, but there was something comfortable about her. Perhaps it was her own love of comfort. 
For eleven years she had worthily striven to maintain some semblance of household order amid conditions that made order very difficult. Habit was very strong with Mrs. Bergson, and her unremitting efforts to repeat the routine of her old life among new surroundings had done a great deal to keep the family from disintegrating morally and getting careless in their ways. The Bergsons had a log house, for instance, only because Mrs. Bergson would not live in a sod house. She missed the fish diet of her own country, and twice every summer she sent the boys to the river, twenty miles to the southward, to fish for channel cat. When the children were little, she used to load them all into the wagon, the baby in its crib, and go fishing herself. Alexandra often said that if her mother were cast upon a desert island, she would thank God for her deliverance, make a garden, and find something to preserve. Preserving was almost a mania with Mrs. Bergson. Stout as she was, she roamed the scrubby banks of Norway Creek looking for fox-grapes and goose-plums, like a wild creature in search of prey. She made a yellow jam of the insipid ground-cherries that grew on the prairie, flavoring it with lemon-peel, and she made a sticky dark conserve of garden tomatoes. She had experimented even with the rank buffalo-pea, and she could not see a fine bronze cluster of them without shaking her head and murmuring, "'What a pity!' When there was nothing more to preserve, she began to pickle. The amount of sugar she used in these processes was sometimes a serious drain upon the family resources. She was a good mother, but she was glad when her children were old enough not to be in her way in the kitchen." She had never quite forgiven John Bergson for bringing her to the end of the earth, but, now that she was there, she wanted to be let alone to reconstruct her old life in so far as that was possible. She could still take some comfort in the world if she had bacon in the cave, glass jars on the shelves, and sheets in the press. She disapproved of all her neighbors because of their slovenly housekeeping, and the women thought her very proud. Once, when Mrs. Bergson, on her way to Norway Creek, stopped to see old Mrs. Lee, the old woman hid in the haymow, for fear Miss Bergson would catch her barefoot. End of chapter 2 of part 1